your Bible to Luke 22. Luke 22. As John was talking, I just remember it had to be almost 15 years ago now, taking John and others uh, to the Central Plateau with Eric Hausler. And um, many of you, or some of you, have been up there. You know what it's like and the need that's there. And it's great to see how that little seed that was planted back then has uh, borne the fruit of a young man <clears throat> and his wife, uh, Kathy, who want to give uh, themselves to uh, the people of, of Haiti on the Central Plateau. Uh, just an encouragement for us to be thinking about um, sending young people on short-term mission trips and, and uh, lighting that fire of a gospel mission. And maybe some older people too. Uh, we, can, uh, we can use our lives in ways more than, than maybe we had imagined God could use us. Luke chapter 22. I'm going to begin actually reading uh, verse 37 of chapter 21. And we're going to just read through verse 6, and that will be the focus of uh, our message this morning. So let's begin Luke 21, verse 37. This is God's written word, inspired by the Spirit, given to us uh, for our teaching and uh, our edification. And every day he, that is Jesus, was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. <clears throat> he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. <clears throat> God in heaven, we come to holy ground here as we see the humility of Christ being willing to give himself and allow himself to be betrayed and brought, put in the hands of wicked men to be sacrificed for our salvation. Lord, I pray that um, the lesson that you have in these words for us by the Holy Spirit would be um, just very relevant, that we would hear from your word, that we would hear from our Savior, that you would speak clearly, uh, Lord, as you always do, but give us ears to hear clearly and hearts to receive it. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning really uh, does contain one of the, if not the most, uh, one of the most uh, tragic, chilling texts in the Bible. This isn't just a Bible story. This isn't a moral tale. It's not a fable. <clears throat> it's not a parable. This is the historical account of a real person, a man uh, named Judas, <clears throat> a man who, uh, before our very eyes, commits the most incredibly wicked act, uh, commits spiritual suicide, in effect, as he agrees to sell Jesus, the Son of God, uh, into the hands of his enemies in order that they might put him to death, uh, knowing exactly what he was doing, and yet consciously making that choice to ally himself with the devil and to make himself an eternal enemy of Christ. Uh, there is something uh, unique about people that we're different from animals in many ways. One of the ways that we're different is that um, 
People have a voyeuristic tendency. Uh, animals, um, growing up in the farm, um, I just noticed animals really don't have uh, compassion much. Uh, if there was a, 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 one of the cows in great distress, the other cows uh, did not mind as long. If there was a hay or silage just the other side of that, uh, on they go. Um, no, no, no slowing of traffic, whatever, whatsoever. Uh, that doesn't how it's not how it works in the human world. If if there's an accident on the expressway, uh, the traffic often slows down, not because there's any hindrance to the traffic, except uh, our need to slow down and look. Well, um, that is a sort of a sad trait in us. Uh, I think it reflects the fact that we sense that we live in danger and that the things that we see happening to others uh, maybe uh, uh, have this, this catch for us because we, we sense it could happen to us. And that's true. And, and, and we should have some of the same sort of feeling as we come to this story. Uh, that, that Judas is not here presented to us as an extraordinarily, uniquely sinful person. He's presented as an incredibly ordinary sinful person. And that what happens to Judas is simply what happens when people just go along in their ordinary life and their ordinary ways and their ordinary sin and don't repent and don't turn to Christ. It's, it's a scary story precisely because this is what sin does and, and it can happen to us. So we have here um, a scene of a man who, who loses his soul forever. His name becomes a byword. If you call someone a Judas, um, you're just saying a very horrible thing about him, that this, this is a wicked, vile betrayer of a friendship. We're going to look, just keep it simple this morning, we'll look at the context and then look at Judas the man himself. And then make some application. The context Luke tells us in verses 1 and 2, um, it's during the feast, the feast of the unleavened bread called the Passover. The irony here is, is rich. This is the most messianic feast. Happens once a year as the, uh, the people of God come together to celebrate the great deliverance uh, under Moses uh, out of the bondage and death of Egypt as God brings them out through a judgment scene. The angel of God's judgment passes over the land and, and the Israelites are instructed to escape that judgment. There's only one way to escape. It's not by being Israeli. It's not by being ethnically Jewish. It's uh, through blood, the blood of a sacrificed lamb. What an incredible picture of, of Christ who was to come. That it doesn't matter uh, your background, doesn't matter your religion, doesn't matter your ethnicity, doesn't matter your morality. All that matters is, have you come under the, the sacrificed blood of the Lamb of God? That's, that's what Passover is about. And, and so the people would be, would be coming into the city. Uh, they would either be bringing their lamb or they would be purchasing them. They, they needed to have that lamb with them for several days before the Passover, and so that, those would be the things taking place, and it's exactly at this time that God now comes to Passover to sacrifice his lamb, his spotless lamb. And so as we see the events unfold here, we just need to see the hand of God. This is not Jesus caught up uh, in the uh, affairs of wicked men. This is Jesus sovereignly giving himself 
to the sovereign plan and saving purpose of God his Father, and, and wicked men will do their worst, but they will only accomplish exactly what God has ordained. And then we, we, we see the leaders, the chief priests and the scribes are seeking how to put him, Jesus, the Son of God, the only perfect man who ever lived, they're seeking to put him to death. And, and the how is the question, you see, because they, they fear the crowds. We're going to be uh, noticing and following this family a little bit more in the, in the weeks to come as we, as we continue through the story. Uh, just to introduce you to the family, uh, the chief priests are ruled by a ruling family. Annas was, had been the high priest for 20 years. The Romans finally got suspicious of the power that he had gathered to himself, and so they removed him, but they removed him and, and only to have uh, his five sons succeed him as high priest, and the current high priest, Caiaphas, is his son in law. So the family is in charge. Uh, these men are Sadducees. They don't believe in a resurrection from the dead. They believe that you live once and then you die. And so they give themselves naturally to the things of this world. They believe in money. They believe in pleasure, in position. They, they, uh, they love the political sphere because that's how they make this all work for themselves. They're the ones who have made the temple a den of robbers. They've, they've found ways to scam people, uh, God's people, uh, out of money, to make money on the worship of God, and they're doing very well. They're sort of, uh, they, they run the nation as, as a Jewish mafia, if, if that helps. Deeply wicked men who openly discuss how do we kill an innocent man because he's getting in the way of the business. He's causing trouble and the people are, are, are gathering around him and, and uh, we're going to lose everything. We need to kill Jesus. That's the solution. And they discuss it frankly and openly. The question is, is how? It's not as easy as you'd think. Uh, the the, the, the the city is packed with people for the Passover. And uh, everywhere Jesus goes, there's this massive crowd around him. And uh, if you remember in Luke chapter 20, verse 6, uh, they, they were discussing, how are we going to do this? And, and uh, they didn't dare to do anything in public because they said, the crowds will stone us. And so here's this, this dilemma. Uh, in their mind, Jesus has to die, but how, how can we go about it? They feared the crowds. Well, they never imagined that their problem would be solved by one of Jesus' own disciples, one of the inner circle. You see, in the evenings, Jesus would go away to the Mount of Olives, and it was a, it, there were groves up there, vineyards, uh, trees, bush, it was, and, and remember in those days, there's no such thing as a light pollution. It's pitch dark. So when Jesus disappears up into the Mount of Olives, he's gone. You can't find him. We, we just read that at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. So um, now Judas comes and Judas says, right, I can lead you to him. I know where he stays. I know where he is. And it will be night. There will be no crowds. There will be no people. It's the perfect solution. And so we read verse 5, they were glad. Of course they were. This was the solution to their diabolical dilemma. Uh, we, we read, they agreed to give him money. Sure they would. This was, this was worth money. They would be able to capture Jesus in secret, away from the crowds. 
So that's the context. And then Luke introduces us to the man. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Uh, Judas called Iscariot. The Judas was a common name in those days, and so you have to distinguish between people. And, and uh, Judas was distinguished by the place where he was born and he grew up, Kerioth, Iscariot. He uh, seems to be the only disciple who was not from Galilee, which is way up to the north on the other side of Samaria. He's a local boy from uh, Judea, near Jerusalem. And so he's uh, distinguished that way. Judas uh, called Iscariot. But more significantly, this is um, Judas, who was of the number of the twelve. Twelve is not a very big number. And, and they are the sum total of the apostles of Jesus Christ. There have only been 12 apostles right in the history of the world. Men specific, specifically called to, to be with Jesus, to see uh, his miracles, to um, hear his words, to, to, to watch him die, to see him raised. They are going to be eyewitnesses. Of the historical accuracy of the gospel account. The, the, the gospel is, is nothing less than a story about, good news about, some things that happened to Jesus for the salvation of sinners. Historical truths, objective truths. And, and so these apostles are called now to be witnesses, to testify before the world. And there's only 12. Now, I know there are men, you can go on television today and online or whatever, and, and apostle so-and-so and apostle so-and-so. They are not apostles. They were not eyewitnesses. That's specifically what an apostle was called to be. And so here's Judas, one of 12. One of 12. And he's, an, he's a trusted man. We know that, that he was entrusted with the money. Uh, if you would have uh, met Jesus and his disciples one day coming down the road in, in some dusty village, uh, you would have noted the, the honored position of these men. If you knew and believed in Jesus, you would, you would admire and, and maybe covet them somewhat, and you would not in a million years have picked out Judas as a man who had a wicked, traitorous heart. Judas wouldn't have even picked himself out because the heart is desperately wicked deceptive and who can understand it and so we read here Luke tells us that Satan entered, entered into him now this is not a demonic possession when we read about demonic possession in the Bible you you uh, see people who um, involuntarily do things so they throw themselves into fire uh, they involuntarily say things and, and they cause harm to themselves involuntarily because they've been possessed by demons who are always intent on destruction. That's not what you have here. Judas's condition is, in a sense, worse than demon possession because his actions are thoroughly voluntary. He, he does this because he wants to do this. He chooses to do this. So why does Luke want us to know that... The devil is also involved. Well, he wants us to be aware that Luke, uh, Judas's actions are, are fully his actions, but not only his actions. That, that this, um, there are spiritual forces at work here. The great archenemy of God, the father of lies, the great dragon, Satan. 
who has hated God from the moment he rebelled against him and has devoted himself to warring against the living God. Satan, now you see, is engaged. He has been all along, of course. He's the one who tempted Jesus in the wilderness. And, and when, he could not, uh, when he could not defeat Jesus in the wilderness, we're, we're told that he went away seeking a more opportune time. Well, that time has, has arrived There is a willing accomplice, a willing servant here among Jesus' very own, the twelve. And and so the the devil now engages in a very specific, intentional way to lead to Jesus' death. This is uh, the moment, in a sense, where Genesis 3.15 is going to now finally be fulfilled. Where where Jesus had said to uh, the devil way back in Genesis 3.15 after the fall that I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And so here you have uh, Judas of the city of men, man in his full, and that is worse. And here you have Jesus Christ, the new Adam. God says to Satan, he, that is the Christ, will bruise your head. He will destroy you. And you shall bruise his heel. And devil, the devil now sets about wounding the son. Now, I have no idea if he knows that in the process he was crushing his own head. I, I tend to think not, but I don't know. But that's what's playing out. And Luke wants us to know that there's a cosmic something happening here. Not just, not just the actions of a man. Well, what is the motive then? Why, why would Judas do this? We know what motivated the leaders. They hated Jesus because he threatened their position. And they loved their position. They loved their power. They had a good life. They were on top of the, sort of the heap. And they liked that position. They liked what it brought. And, and so um, they hate Jesus because he threatens it. But, but why would Judas hate Jesus? Think of this. Why would Judas hate Jesus? Jesus, and and this is an act of hatred. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows these guys. He's grown up in the neighborhood. He knows what they're capable of. He knows how wicked and malicious they actually are. And yet he takes the initiative to hand Jesus over. They did not come to him and find him at a weak moment and make him an offer that he couldn't refuse. That's not what happened. He thought about it. He came up with a plan. He went to them and suggested it to them. Now, how, why would a man do that? Because there's so many reasons he shouldn't have done it. Judas, you see, was a, was a first-hand witness to the most astonishing ministry in the history of the world. He saw everything that Jesus did. He was right there. And so he, he, he saw all the miracles. He saw the blind people who suddenly received their sight and, and the lame people with a word now getting up and walking and leaping and praising God. He, he saw lepers cleansed. It's not possible to cleanse lepers. And yet there it happened. He saw dead people raised to life. Just a few days ago, Lazarus. He heard the amazing teaching of Christ. The authority, he saw it all. And he knew what Jesus was like in person. He was not sort of a distant bystander. One of the, um, one of the things that's very common is um, that there will be a popular religious teacher, a pastor, a speaker, an author who everybody knows and everybody loves. Um, but if you go talk to the people in his inner circle, 
The people who really know him, you'll find they're not quite as enamored. Because they'll find that he's petty, he's selfish, uh, he is easily angered, right? Whatever it might be. I remember being stunned as a young man in college. I had an opportunity to ride in a car to go to the airport with a well-known leader in the, in the community, in the, in the religious community, a pastor um, with degrees, and I was looking forward to it. Um, he was going to give me a ride to the, to, to the airport, um, and I was, I, was, I was stunned into silence. That takes a lot of stunning. <clears throat> to see what he was like in private because it was completely different and appalling. Well, that's common. That's not uncommon. Well, that is not Judas's experience. Jesus is the most loving, gracious, purely good person who has ever lived. A more loving, gracious life is not possible. John says that we saw him, we saw his glory. He was full of grace and truth. Every word Jesus spoke was astoundingly true. Every motive was pure. Every act was purposeful and fruitful for the glory of the Father. He never had an off moment. So how could Judas hate him? How do you hate a person like this? What fault did he find in him? And, and of course, the truth is, the answer is, there was no fault in Jesus. The, the horrifying flaw is in Judas. Psalm, one, Psalm 35, verse 19, prophesies, and Jesus mentions this in John 15. He says, the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Judas hates Jesus Without a cause. But though there is not a cause in that sense, there is a reason, and Luke gives us a clue, they agreed to give him money. Notice, they didn't suggest a monetary reward. He did. In fact, we're told that specifically in Matthew 26, 15. What will you give me if I hand him over to you? That was Judas's question. What's it worth to you? Judas saw an opportunity, you see, to make a deal, to, to, to get money. He did it for the money. How, how, how banal, or banal, however you say that word. How incredibly shallow, cheap, for money? 30 pieces of silver? That, you, you sold your soul to eternal hell for 30 pieces of silver. You sold Christ into the hands of his enemies for 30 pieces of silver. How do, you, how do you make that decision? It's not a lot of money. It's hard to know exactly how much it is because there's different sorts of coins which are worth different amounts. It could vary either somewhere between several hundred dollars to maybe $3,000. That's not a lot of money. So how do you get there? Well, you get there through a thousand small decisions. And that's exactly what happened with Judas. If you turn um, in, into Luke chapter 16. Well, we'll get that in a moment. <clears throat> go, tell you what, go first to John 12. Let's do that. Let's go to John 12. And then we'll go to Luke 16. John 12. We'll see that this has been a problem. Uh, this has been a sin in Judas's life right along. 
John 12, verse 3. We'll just start at verse 1. So this is recent. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. And Martha was served, Lazarus, one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Beautiful act of worship. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, this all came to light, obviously, after uh, the betrayal. But, you see, um, long before Judas was a traitor, Judas was a thief. Not a great thief, just a little subtle thief. He didn't embezzle millions of dollars from the, uh, the account. There wasn't millions of dollars to be had. Jesus and his disciples were poor. The little money they had could easily be carried in a bag on a, on a man. And, and with such a small amount there, you can't be taking big chunks of it or it's going to be noticed. And so he was only able to take little bits from this little bit. He was a very small thief. But you see, it's, it isn't the magnitude of our sin that kills us. It's, it's the malignancy of the heart behind the sin. Our problem isn't that we create great sins. The problem is that we love our little sins. We love them. He loved money. And even if he could only just take a few small pieces from the bag, he did it because he loved money. It's, it's the love, you see, of sin that is so deadly. Now, um, he sinned over a period of time in this small way, but against clear warnings. It's not easy to be a thief in the presence of Jesus. Go to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verse 10. Jesus is telling this um, a parable and then making the application. Luke 16. So he's given the, the parable of the dishonest manager. He's going to talk about, he's going to talk about money. Pick it up at verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If you then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now imagine being Judas standing there listening to those words. If you're dishonest in a little, you're going to be dishonest in much. You can't serve both. You're going to love the one and you're going to hate the other. It's prophetic. And that's exactly what happened to Judas's life. He, he, the more he, he was devoted himself to money, the more he came to hate Jesus. It didn't happen right away. When Judas first began following Christ, I'm certain that he was deeply impressed with him. 
or he wouldn't have followed him. It's possible he, Judas would have said he loved him. He was in every apparent way a true disciple. There was nothing about him that looked any different. None of the disciples suspected a thing. So they had no idea what was going on in his life. In fact, even when it happens, as it happens, they don't see what's going on. So when Jesus says, one of you at this table will betray me, the disciples don't go, is it Judas? What they say is, is it I? Is it I? They're, they are dumbfounded, clueless. And then Jesus gives the bread to Judas and says to him, what you are about to do, do quickly. And Judas gets up and leaves the room. And we're told in John 13, 29, some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So when they saw Judas hit the exits, they were thinking, Maybe Jesus sent him to go get some more food for the feast, or some were thinking, I'll bet Jesus sent him to give alms uh, to the poor. That was commonly done for Passover, so, so Judas has an errand. They have no clue what's going on. So, so how does this happen right in the middle of the disciples? How does this man suddenly make a decision to do such a wicked, malicious, hateful thing? And the answer is because he's been making that decision a thousand times already. Every time the temptation came to take a little bit of money out of the bag, it's a temptation, do I do what is right? Do I honor the Lord or do I serve myself? And every time he made the decision to serve himself, just a little bit, not a lot, not a, not a big thing, just a little. You see, friends, th this, this is what happens when, when we refuse to repent of sin. His little sin doesn't seem like a big deal, but, but you see, it's unrepented sin. And so, so the bondage grows and grows and grows. His, his love for this idol increases, and his, his hatred of Christ then, for no reason, increases. And, and Judas makes this, this decision in, against clear warnings, and he makes it in the face of Beautiful grace. Think of all the opportunities Judas has to repent, to confess. He knows that Jesus is willing to forgive sinners. He's seen Jesus uh, embrace tax collectors and forgive prostitutes. There's no doubt Jesus is willing to forgive. He knows that Jesus has the authority to forgive. That was the, the question when the men let the, the, the paralyzed man down on the mat. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. And the rabbis, the Pharisees are going, who do you think you are that you can say to a guy, uh, his sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. Well, they're exactly right. So Jesus says, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says, what's going to be easier, to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Well, it's going to be a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven. Who can tell? But he says, so that you might know that I have the authority to do exactly that. I say to you, get up and walk. Judas knows that he has the authority. He knows that he's willing. He's heard the gracious invitation, come all you are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. You don't think this laid on his conscience? How can you be in the presence of Jesus, this beautiful, gracious, good man, and, and knowing that you're stealing from him and not have that way in your conscience? And he knows that there's a promise attached to that sort of confession. When, when Jesus told the parable of the, of the tax collector and the Pharisee who went to the temple to pray, and one said, I thank God that I'm not like other men. And the other could not even lift his eyes but beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus says, this man went home justified. Judas knew he was a sinner. 
The law told him that. His own conscience told him that. The beautiful, righteous, and obedience of Jesus Christ was a, was a blazing mirror right in front of him that exposed the wickedness of his own heart. But he did not repent. He would not repent. He would not be saved. He would not confess. His pride and his love, his idol, would not let him. And so undoubtedly he comforted himself with little self-justifications that, that it wasn't a lot of money. And, and he was one of the disciples. He's part of the ministry. He has some right to it in some sense. And, and after all, he's the only one with an official job. The other guys are just kind of walking along and, and listening. And he's got responsibilities. It's got to be worth something. Little justifications, you see, just to, to, to quiet the conscience. But he never stopped and asked the question, why do I love money? And why don't I love Jesus? And why can't I stop? And what will God do to me on the last day? He never asked those questions. How can I be saved from me? And so he never cried out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's how Judas made this awful, awful decision. He'd been making it all along. Let me wrap up with some applications. First, just the nature of sin. Sin is not just doing something you shouldn't do. Sin is not just moral failure. Sin is alliance with the satanic realm. By nature, right, that's what sin is. And those who live in unrepentant sin, Jesus says, are sons of the devil. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. So you're, we're dead in sin by nature, following Satan by nature. This spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Why do people do what they do? Because they, they want to. They, they feel deeply that they desire this. They need this. They must have this, whatever it is. And they don't stop to ask, but what does God want? What does God desire? And so the passions of the flesh, and that doesn't just mean the body, but of the sinful nature, fulfilling the desires of, of the body and the, and the sinful mind, and following, therefore, the prince of the ruler of, of the power of the air. That's, that's what sin is. That's what, that's what it is to be lost in sin. It's not just that you've done some bad things. It's that you belong to this power by nature. And how can you be rescued? See, again, there's a temptation to see Judas as an extraordinary, uh, unique individual that someone we could safely say, that's awful, but I would, uh, I would, that would never happen to me. Riken says the reason the Bible reveals that Judas had a profit motive, something so banal, is not to stigmatize him, but to show how ordinary his temptation was. Just, just as ordinary, ordinary as, as your gossip, your anger, your lusting after a pretty woman, it's just a small thing. It's a very little thing. Everyone does it. Everyone loses their temper from time to time. But the question you see you're not asking is, is why do I so love my way? Why do, I, why do I look at that pretty woman made in the image of God and, and lust after her? Why do I love that beauty more than the beauty of Jesus Christ? See, that's the question. It's the questions we don't ask. 
Judas' sin isn't greater than our sin, it, but, but see, all sin unrepented is fatal sin. All sin left unconfessed is, is fatal sin. And so the, the, the reality of sin, we just need to see what an awful, horrifying, terrifying thing it is. To be in the grip of sin is, is death. Inevitably, death. And, 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 and secondly, then, the necessity of repentance. We must repent. So Jesus came preaching a message of repentance. And when the apostles were sent out, they preached repentance. When, when Peter preaches his very first sermon, Pentecost Sunday, and, and men are convicted and they said, what, what do we need to do to be saved? We've murdered, we've crucified the Son of God. Peter says, repent. That's the call Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that God has made in Christ available a Savior for sinners and then run to him and, and repent, turn from sin. Confess it is what it is and turn. Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson says, the question isn't, is my sin forgivable? Of course it's forgivable. The question is, is it forgiven? Is it forgiven? Have you confessed it? Have you confessed the truth of your sin? Humbly, Frankly, honestly, truly before God, as worthy of condemnation, as a great sin for which there is no excuse and for, for which there is no cure other than Christ Jesus. One of the things that just struck me as I was preparing for this this week is that we, we, we in some sense, stand in danger of committing the great sin of Judas in a way that the world doesn't. They don't, they don't get to come into the presence of Jesus week after week. They don't get to hear the words of Jesus. They don't get to see the miracles of Jesus. They don't get to, to know the truth. They don't get to hear the invitations. And we do. And so how much greater our guilt if we would neglect so great a salvation? But what we, what we need to wrap up, and I'll close with this, is just the wonder of, of the gospel. That, that Jesus here is not becoming a victim. Jesus here is, is the willing servant, the, the good shepherd who's laying down his life for his sheep. Jesus submits to this betrayal. He knows exactly what's going on. He chose Judas to be a disciple knowing exactly what Judas was going to do. So why would he do that? Because he loved you. And he came to give his life, to give his life for you. The sinner... To you, the Judas by nature, he submitted to betrayal so that we could be rescued from ours, so that we could be not condemned as we deserve, but we could be reconciled to God the Father. We could be robed in righteousness, and the gospel invitation now goes to you, the, 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 the sinning believer, day after day, week after week, Jesus calls you the sinning believer, come, come, come and rest. Whoever's thirsty, let him come, let him drink freely of the water of life. Isn't that good news? Isn't it wonderful to know that in spite of our sin, in spite of the desperate wickedness of our own hearts, in spite of our slowness to hear and to understand and oftentimes to obey, in spite of all of that, the gospel comes to you in all of its fullness, in all of its richness, in all of its efficacy, its, its, its ability to rescue, to wash clean and to make new, the gospel comes to you. This Jesus stands before you today. Come. I will give you rest. Repent, and you will be saved. If you've never done that, if you've never simply laid yourself, the truth about you, before God, 
and gone to Jesus Christ on the cross and raised from the dead for your sin. I, I would just beg you to do that. I don't care how long you've been in church. If you've never done that, would you, you, I plead with you, come to Christ in that way. It's the way to be saved. And if you don't, if you, if you rely on being basically a moral person and trying your hardest and believing certain things, and your sin will simply continue to grow. Your love that you have for it will just simmer and lay and, and slowly spread like a cancer. And because you make a thousand small decisions not to surrender to Christ and to serve yourself, at the end of the day, you'll have made the great awful decision not to follow, not to repent, not to confess, not to be saved. But if you come and confess your sin, never thoroughly, perfectly. We don't confess perfectly. We don't repent perfectly. We're not saved by the fullness of our repentance. We're saved by Jesus Christ. But the way to Jesus Christ, friends, is to confess your sin and turn to him and embrace him for all that he is. And he promises, he promises, you will be saved forever. Amen? Let's pray together. God in heaven, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that his grace is sufficient. I thank you, Lord, that he is able to bring us to repentance. He's able to bring us back to our senses. I thank you, Lord, no matter how greatly and grievously we've sinned, uh, it is not the magnitude of our sin that kills us. It's our love for sin. But Jesus Christ, you have come to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Jesus Christ, you've come to give us a new heart. And Lord, we come now as, as believing saints. We come, Lord, and confess again that we want Jesus. We want Jesus more than, than our flesh wants pleasure and and pride, and, and, and our way, and, and our comfort, and our security, all the idols that trip us up day after day. Lord Jesus, we want you more. We want, we want your, your grace to wash over us. We want your love to fill us. We want your cross, your sacrifice to be our only righteousness and our only hope. We want you, Lord Jesus. Receive us. Thank you so much. You promised to do that. And Lord, for those who've never confessed, never repented, never turned to Jesus Christ with that desperate cry, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh God, please work in that heart today. You are a saving God. You are a gracious God. And so, Lord Jesus, draw then that soul. Draw us to yourself that we can have the confidence that, Lord Jesus, as you began this journey toward the cross, you did it on purpose. You did it for us. You did it for love's sake. And you love us still. Help us to rejoice in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.